The scripture lesson this morning is taken from the book of Matthew, chapter 26, beginning with verse 1. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, As you know, the Passover is two days away, and the Son of Man will be handed over to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people assembled in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they schemed to arrest Jesus secretly and kill him. But not during the festival, they said, or there might be a riot among the people. While Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the, deep, when the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why waste this, they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing for me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured the perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him thirty pieces of silver. From then on, Jesus watched, Judas, <laughs> Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. That last song, it's gospel song, we sang, Be like Jesus, this my song. Be like Jesus uh, in the home and in the throng. Yes, I know what a throng is. <laughs> I, we probably have a generation, probably not you folks, but probably have a generation. What, what in the world is a throng? It sounds like something you'd see in one of these Marvel superhero movies. You know, the throng attacks and then Iron Man and, and all the others come out and they save the world from the throng. So anyway, and just so you know, I'm not lying, it's a crowd. It's the public place. It's, the, it's, it's all that. It's just a little, bit, and a little bit older kind of thing. These are amazing hymns. Uh, just for the record, those last two hymns really come out of uh, the, the revival in worship music, contemporary Christian music. Of course, it was contemporary in the mid to late 1800s, but it was contemporary. And that contemporary music was looked on with disdain and in some circles still looked on with great disdain. How, how dare they do this? But they were birthed in revival. They were birthed in, in frontier towns. They were birthed in camp meetings where God was pouring out his, his Holy Spirit on people. And the people that they were saving weren't always educated. They weren't readers per se, and they weren't all of that, so they made it as easy as possible. They put a chorus on that everybody could learn and sing, and then the person up front would sing the, sing the verse, and they might have a, a call response like, uh, how do we do this? Earthly pleasures vainly call me, 
I would be like Jesus. Everybody could sing that. Anyway, it was a marvelous time, and we are great inheritors of that, and I pray a blessing over that. In spite of what some may say about it, it was a... They were, they were heartfelt praises to our great God and really articulated something we want more about Jesus, more of Jesus, and that we would be like Jesus. As we uh, are looking at this scripture together, this passage is, should be familiar to you. Just a couple of weeks ago, you, well, we heard that, Walter. We've already covered this. Why are, why are we going back? Four conversations really at the end of this first half of Holy Week. It's that, that moment, and you know it's there because of how it's entered there. But I want to I go back further. I'd like to begin today by taking you back to Matthew chapter 11. Now, you'll recognize this, but not right away. The end of chapter 11, Jesus moves into, and it's one of the few times we hear him praying and talking to the Father spontaneously. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth. I praise you that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this way was well-pleasing in your sight. It's brilliant on your part, God. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Father, uh, the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son determines to reveal him. It's a marvelous little... It's not a teaching, technically. It's this, this conversation he's having, and he's including the people that are listening. It's just, it's a great thing. It's what follows that I want you to really pay attention to. Here's where it gets very familiar. Come to me, talking to the disciples, talking to the people. Come to me, all who are weary, all who are burdened, all who are heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is comfortable, easy, and my burden is light. And may God add his blessing on the reading of that word as well. I wanted to call your attention just to one phrase One invitation, one command, one really great suggestion. Learn from me. Learn from me. Learn from me. We're taking a second look at this passage from Matthew 26, verses 1 to 16. The final conversations before the passion of the Christ. Technically, we are in Lent. We're about a week behind because of snow, but that's okay. We're going we're gonna to make up for that. We're looking at this, and a couple of weeks ago, three weeks ago, I believe it was, when we, when we came to this passage, we were looking at these final conversations to look at the people that were in the wrong. And so there was the, we, we looked at that. We saw that the disciples, man, they got it wrong. And they were in the wrong place. And they were doing the wrong thing. And then in, in addition to that, there were the chief priests and the elders. And they were really wrong because they are conspiring to kill and destroy Jesus. To wipe him out. Wipe his ministry out. And then, of course, it ends in that passage where Judas, 
one of the twelve, one of his closest disciples, decides that he's going to betray him. Get some money on the side. Sounds even more despicable, doesn't it? Well, it was. That's what's happening here. We're taking a look at it now because that was what was wrong. But we're looking at it today to see what's right. And in this moment, it sets the stage. It sets, sets everything that we're going to be looking at and helps us to focus our attention on just one person, Jesus. Not necessarily, although we will look at the things that happened to him, but to look at how he handled everything that he was facing. And as we begin this, and it's one of the things I'm going to ask you to do over the next few weeks, I want to know what you see. I want to know what you don't see in Jesus during this time. What do I see? What don't I see? I'm glad you ask. <laughs> Maybe not because you're asking, but I'm glad you ask. What do I see? <clears throat> well, let me take it by walking you through the passage. In verses 6 and 7, they, they, let me go back, back further. Verses 1 and 2. We've just come off of Matthew 24 and 25, the marvelous teaching about the end times. And what's on Jesus' heart and mind? To reset the disciples. To refocus them. To get their attention back on what's important. And so it's, it's a very quiet thing. I don't hear any anxiety in it. I don't hear any anger in it. I don't hear any ranting or raving or, will you people pay attention to me? It's not that. It's just, as you know, the Passover is in a couple of days. And, as you know, the Son of Man will be crucified. Wow. That's what's on his heart. That's what he is calling the disciples to focus on. These two things, the Passover, the celebration of God's deliverance of the, of the Jewish people from slavery... There might be something in that we should pay attention to. And then, of course, his own crucifixion, death and crucifixion, the suffering. That's what's important to him as he's doing this. That's what I see there. What I don't see, well, I'll talk about that more later, but I don't, you know, I, I received in the mail, in the email, uh, something from uh, a, a leader of leaders who uh, I, I regularly, he's a believer, his name's Bob Beal, and Bob Beal sends out weekly these encouragement things. And he was trying to get, uh, trying to get the people, me, like, like us, on, back on track. And so he said, if you knew you only had three, day, three years to live, what were the top three things you would do in three years? And then he asked this. If you knew you only had three weeks to live, what were the top three things you would do over the next three weeks? If you knew you, and the third one was, if you knew you only had three days to live, what would be the top three things you would do? Wow. It was an eye-opener for me. 
I won't tell you the rest of that story at this time. Maybe I won't get to it. I don't know. But it was this resetting. And it was reasonable. It wasn't, there wasn't any whatever, but in, in, in that moment, it's like calls us to focus and calls us to think about what's important right now. Talk more about what's not important in just a moment. Then, of course, there's the, the, the conversation about the chief elders. We're going to skip over that. We're going to skip over Judas at the end. We're going to take that second one where Jesus is responding because now Jesus is at the home of Simon the leper over in Bethany. That's the other side of the, the Mount of Olives, and he's there, and he's relaxing, and he's reclining. He's sitting down. To, they sat down. They reclined. It's kind of between a, a, seat, a sit and a laying down at the table, uh, and they were ready for that. And as he's there, in verses 6 and 7, this woman comes in, and she's got some perfume in an alabaster jar. It's very expensive. And she breaks the jar, and she pours it on Jesus' head. And she's in that moment, pouring it on Jesus' head. And as she does that, Jesus is just reclining there. The disciples get indignant. I mean indignant. And then they speak about that. And when they speak about that, what's important about there is you can see that they are rising up in something that is near and dear to many of us, and sometimes all of us. They rise up in righteous indignation. What are you doing, woman? What are you doing? That's expensive stuff. It's not necessary here. That could have been sold. We could have given something to the poor because it's Passover. We have an obligation. We've got to help them. And, and they're, they're, they're in this outrage and this, indign- and this righteous ignorance. It's all there. And Jesus, <laughs> Jesus stops And his response is obvious. The first part of the response is he is so focused on this woman and blessing what the woman has done. She's done a beautiful thing. She has anointed me for my burial. Getting back on track. What's important? And then he speaks because he's concerned about the disciples who are off the rails. He reminds him they're always going to have an opportunity for the poor, but not always to be with him. It's another reset, brings him back to this. And then he blesses this woman in ways that it's, in fact, I'm not sure if there's any other time in the Gospels where this is said. What she has done will be remembered as long as the Gospel is preached. And he honors her beyond belief. It's an interesting passage. It's an interesting moment as he's there with, with them and getting them back in shape. Now, what does it tell me? What do I see about Jesus? Well, I'll tell you what I don't see. I don't hear any 
anxiety. I don't hear any fear. I don't hear any obsession about, ooh, I don't hear any anger. I don't hear any frustration. I hear someone who is amazingly focused, calm, collected, cool, confidence, aware, and completely undisturbed, which is amazing to me because I'm the kind of guy that when I go to my computer and for the umpteenth time I go to the website and my email website comes up with an error message that I've put in the wrong and, and, and I have this fight with it and, and that just sets me off <laughs> and off I go. I'm a guy who gets upset because there was a period of time where I went to Martin's and I could not find for almost three months toilet paper. But he's not like that. Now think with me what he is facing at that point. What he's looking at at that point. He is surrounded by Conflict, people getting, people doing the wrong things, demanding of him the wrong things, and from without and from within. From without the leadership of the Hebrew people at that time. The politically powerful are conspiring together, together against him to kill him and to destroy him. I, I would have a tough time with that. <laughs> I'm sure you wouldn't. From within his ranks, the disciples who he just gave a glorious teaching in Matthew 24 and 25, they're coming back and they're going off the rails because he keeps coming back to he's going to be crucified. And it's like they don't want to be reminded of that. So what do they do? They just drop back and they're in their own little world and they just rise up in righteous indignation about something that's really not that important. At least not to Jesus. And they go after a a woman who's done something marvelous for Jesus. That's Jesus' word. And they're so off the rails and yet he's calmly bringing them back. And he's he's dealing with that. And now he's dealing with as well this, at the end of this, we find out that one of his disciples is going to betray him, going to take action for money to put him to death, to to betray him, to set him up. And what he's coming up, what he's facing, and he's completely aware of this. He's aware of what's going on in the meal. He's not so aware of what's going to happen that he's not, he's, he's engaged in the meal. He's relaxed. He's there reclining at the meal. He's not upset by what's happening with this woman. He's not, he's, he's, he's certainly present because he knows what the disciples are doing and he's, he's able to speak to them and not rant and rave at them. Who does that? Who does that? Who doesn't rant and rave when we go off the rails? I I, I just, wow. 
Now, what I what what I'm doing here is I'm going back and I'm and and it's been a pleasure to do this and also a pain to do this. And I'll get to that in a moment. But here's Jesus, and to look at Jesus, and yet yeah, remind us what he went through. But to look at Jesus and throughout the Passion as we go through these these weeks of Lent, to watch him, to study him, to learn from him. This is how. He handled life. This is how he handled death. And I got through looking at that, and I, all I could do was sit there and go, how does he do that? How does he do that? There's more to that. I just want to take a little side trip here. I want to talk just a little bit about doctrine. I want to answer this doctrinally, theologically, because we do declare, it's part of our doctrinal roots, it's not completely out there as it was, but it's historically what we believe, that Jesus is fully God and fully human. There's a mystery in that. We don't know how that works. And right here, we're facing that because... It's very easy to say, how did he do that? Well, he did that because he's fully God. But that would not be according to Scripture. There's a moment in the movie Apollo 13. If you've ever seen it, if you haven't seen it, I recommend it to you. Apollo 13, it's an, you know, many of you were, I was around when Apollo 13 was going on. You remember those days. And uh, in the Apollo 13 story, as it's captured on film, the one crew member who was bumped from the team just before they were getting ready to launch, just weeks before they are getting ready to launch, Ken Mattingly. Now the Apollo 13 went up without him, and the, the Apollo 13, the, the, the accident happened. The, the, the panel blew out, and they, were, they lost so much. And now the, the critical thing was getting back. Well, Ken Mattingly is brought in to go into the simulation capsule. And as he goes in, he demands from everybody there, I don't want heat. I only want what they have up there. So don't give me any light. Give me a flashlight. That's the flashlight they have. I want the cockpit to be exactly the way it was. That's a great moment for us. Because when Jesus comes here, this theological thing, well, he, how does he do that? He does that because he's God. No. He does this out of his humanity. And Jesus is in that place when he decides, he and the Father decides, when, you, when I come here, all I want is what you have, is what I have. And he's working with that. That's what he works with. And as a human being, he has got to have faith. As God himself, obviously, he, does, he, he, he doesn't need faith. He's God himself. But as a human being, he has to have faith. He has to have trust in what God is putting out in front of him, trust that God's going to get him through. He's going to have to have trust in all and as a human being, and as human, we were created to walk with God. He has to have the Holy Spirit. Do you remember from Luke chapter 4? 
It's, it is such a great passage. I don't mind reminding you that, uh, about it. And I want to give you the full thing. Luke chapter 4, that's, you know, when he goes off into to be tempted in the wilderness. Okay. So, before he gets that, after the baptism, the first thing it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit. In that same verse... Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit. And then as he comes back for the temptation, verse 14, Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. And in those two verses, in those three things, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, and in the power of the Holy Spirit, we see how God intended for us to live. When we were created, Adam and Eve, they were intended to be full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit, and live and work and do everything in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's where he's getting us back. And we're not to be, as we would rather be, we're not to be, speaking of superheroes, we're not to be superheroes. God never intended us for have, to have a phone booth that we run into and all of a sudden we come out and we're, we're, we're super. He meant us to be fully human, full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how he did it. I still want to ask, how did you do that, Lord? How did you do that? I get upset about so many pitifully, obscenely insignificant things. And the least little thing will set me off. How do you do it, Jesus? How do you live... And what he's doing here, even in this, in this transition into the Passion Week, as he's facing the work, worst week of anyone's life, no one has gone through what he went through over the next three or four days. But to live fully, fully aware, fully confident, fully empowered, fully led, full of faith, to live and walk by that faith, to live and walk in the Holy Spirit, to be calm, to not be afraid, to not be anxious. You know, if they took anxiety out of the dictionary, I wouldn't know what to do. <laughs> I'd have no word to talk about what my life is like on occasion. To live fully human. And in this moment when I look at him, well, I ask, I, I ask a couple questions. I, I say, you know, and, and, and well, that's how you do it. And I immediately went to religion. And religion says, you should do that. You should do that. Walter, you should be that way. And that misses a couple, a couple of steps, <laughs> folks. To go from what Jesus was to Walter, you should do that, and, and I'm lost. And when I'm lost in that, I, when I lost, I, 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 I want to put the other steps there. I see him do that, and then I need, I need to know, I need to learn how to do that. And then when I learn how to do it, 
I need to believe that I can do that, not in my own power. And I need to believe that the Holy Spirit in me, leading me, empowering me, will change me and conform me to that. God's not taking me to form me into be God. He doesn't need anybody up there helping him as God. He's not moving us to be God, but he is moving us to be fully human. Would you be like Jesus? Do you believe it's possible for you to face life like he does? Apparently he does. Full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, led by the Holy Spirit, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Full of hope, full of love. All of these are gifts that he gives us. Come to me, Jesus says, all of you who are weary and burdened, heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. I'm gentle. I'm humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls in the midst of of this crazy, dark world. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you. What an example Jesus is. And he's not trying to be an example. He's just being what you've called us to be. He is being fully human as you created us to be full of all the gifts that you have for us. Faith, which is not of ourselves, but a gift of God. Hope, love, peace, joy. Strength, rest. All gifts from your hand. Full of grace, full of mercy. Full of the Holy Spirit. Led by the Holy Spirit. In the power of the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God, for showing us. Showing us what life is truly like to be fully human. To be completely saved. Showing us that it's possible for us. That there is a life that you are taking us to. Increasing our faith to believe that you will accomplish this in us, even now. Father, we would be like Jesus. Accomplish your will in us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.